but it's good to hear pages rustling and it's also good to hear takeaway wrappers rustling as well, whichever it might be. Um, has anyone saved their dinner for this moment and you're ready to eat now? Nah, I ate mine already too. Plus it would be awkward if I ate a hamburger right now. But there you go. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll get into God's word together. Well, Father God, we thank you for the amazing privilege of being gathered together under Christ here tonight. Uh, we thank you particularly for the privilege of sitting under the sound of the voice of the living God. We pray that you'd speak to us from your word in this passage in front of us tonight. We pray that your spirit would do a mighty work among us, that you'd stir us up to see Jesus clearly and to see the treasure that he is, for his glory. Amen. Well, that feeling that you're all alone, that no one else quite understands, I think is a powerful feeling. It's a powerful experience. It's isolating, actually, uh, to, to be in that place. Now, tonight is a celebration, isn't it? it is a, there's a real vibe of celebration. We're back together. It's good to be together. There's lots of good vibes. And I want to recognize that it is, it is so good. But I wonder still, even in this moment as we tonight get back together... <laughs> I wonder what kind of scars or baggage we might be kind of carrying with us as we kind of re-emerge into the world. See, my guess is that even tonight, the stuff that we've been dealing with for the last three months or so is still there. The mess of this world and this life is going to follow us back as we emerge into the world together. Now, for some of us tonight, it might be that as we begin to reconnect and see one another... It could be that as you're surrounded by people, you still may actually feel quite lonely, isolated. That, that it, is, it is possible, perhaps feeling a little bit forgotten over the last few months even. Like there's stuff that's been going on for you in your life and no one really knows actually what's been going on or, or at least no one seems to care. It could be as well that you're actually tonight feeling a little bit anxious, perhaps even afraid. Uh, COVID-19 is still a thing and perhaps you're someone who's actually quite worried about getting sick or someone you love getting sick and perhaps even dying. And I wonder if that's a fear that kind of hangs for you in the back of your head. And so now as we come out of lockdown, we're like, woo, let's come out, of this is great, we can be together. But with that actually may come more anxiety and worry about what all that's going to mean. It, it might be as well though that it's possible likely I think that there'll be people here who tonight are actually feeling quite perhaps rejected perhaps rejected see I wonder if particularly in this season of life right now with what's going on I do wonder if our unvaccinated Christian brothers and sisters uh, are actually feeling pretty on the outside now I'm not saying that they should feel that way or should be made to feel that way but I do want to make the observation that in our wider society and in this community as well there will be people who are feeling on the outer simply because of that dynamic. They'll feel like they're on the fringes. People have been talking about the unvaccinated like they're crazy or dumb or evil, and I'm not saying they are at all, but people are going to be feeling that way. They're going to be feeling rejected. And finally, I suspect as we re-emerge from lockdown and get together, I wonder if some of us are even feeling a little bit helpless. Helpless particularly when it comes to sin and temptation. Because it is the case, isn't it, that for the last bunch of months, uh, 
for many of us, life has looked like lots of alone time, lots of isolation time on your own, and probably a whole bunch of bad life choices, hours of time where you've made bad decisions and formed new habits, new sins have crept in, new addictions have crept in. And it could be that as you come back into the world, you're like, ah, finally, but you're dragging with you some addictions and some things that weren't there before. And it could be that you're feeling quite helpless to move on. Now, wherever you're feeling today, I feel like all those things are a little bit of a buzzkill, aren't they? And I take it there's a good vibe among us as well. But I take it that even as we emerge into this good vibe and we're together, yes, and we can lift our voices to God, I take it in the back of our mind, some of us still are feeling lonely and afraid, perhaps rejected, perhaps helpless, or a whole mixture of things, who knows? What is clear, though, is I reckon what is crystal clear is this. No one, no one else here... (laughs) knows quite what it's like to walk in your shoes. No one here knows your situation perfectly and can say, yeah, I get that in every sense. And so here's the question. In that context, where do we turn for hope? Where do we turn for help? See, the great hope of these last few months in lockdown has been that vaccination rates are rising and restrictions are ending. And so praise God that's happened. But will that solve all of our problems all of a sudden? We got vaccinated, we came out of lockdown. Will that solve everything? See, what if when you come out of lockdown, surrounded now by people, you still feel lonely? (laughs) What if now vaccinated, you still actually feel pretty afraid? What if that sense of rejection and being on the outside of society actually gets worse in the coming months? What if after lockdown, as you regather and meet with God's people, Sin and temptation sticks and you say stuck. Where do you turn? Well, friends, tonight in this passage, it holds the answer to those deep problems. Tonight's passage offers us help (laughs) and particularly it shows us Jesus, the one who can help us. And not only that, it shows us Jesus, the one who knows what it's like to walk in your shoes, to go through what you've been going through. Now, here's the first staggering thing that I want us to see in this passage tonight. Here it is. I want you to notice the ridiculous fact of the incarnation of Jesus. Now, incarnation, it means to take on flesh, to put on meat, to become a human. And the outrageous claim of this passage is that that is what Jesus did. Have a look at verse 14 there. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus too shared in their humanity. Then have a look down at verse 17, it fills it out even more. It says, for this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus became a human in every sense of the word. God really did become a man. Now, our first few weeks in Hebrews, if you've been tracking with us, we've plunged the depths of who Jesus is. We've seen Jesus revealed for who he really is. And so back in chapter 1, verse 2, we saw that Jesus, the Son, is the one who made the universe. He made this beautiful creation. In verse 3 of chapter 1, the Son is the exact representation of God's being, the radiance of his glory. Verse 4, he towers above the angels. He is God. Jesus, the Son, is God. He's the eternal, infinite God. And this one, the one from chapter 1 in chapter 2 we now see, became human. The average human is 43 kilos of oxygen, 16 kilograms of carbon, 7 kilos of hydrogen, a pinch of nitrogen and calcium and a few other things. 
God became that. He took on frail humanity. It wasn't that he was mostly God and then became a little bit 10% human or something like that. No, no, chapter 1, he is 100% God in every sense. And here in chapter 2, he is fully human in every way, 100%. For 33 years, Jesus felt what you feel. He felt weakness. He got tired. He was afraid of failure. He got sick. He could have caught COVID if he was around today. He got hungry. He had body odour. His feelings got hurt. He wept. This is the ridiculous reality of the incarnation. Now, why? Why would God do such a thing? Well, that's what we're going to see in the rest of this passage. And here's our great comfort. What does the incarnation achieve? Three things. Number one, as a man, Jesus defeats death and the power of Satan. Have a look there in verse 14. This is the reason for the incarnation. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus took on humanity so that, for the purpose that, he might defeat the devil, the one who holds the power of of death. Now, what is, what's with that? In what sense um, does the devil hold the power of death? What, is, what does that sentence mean? Well, the Scriptures tell us that the devil, the devil and death, they're in cahoots together. They are both our common enemy, and in fact, sin, our third common enemy with them, have all aligned themselves against us as our great enemy. Now, the Bible talks about the fact that Satan is the tempter, the one who would entice us towards sin. But not only that, he's also the accuser in Revelation chapter 12. He's the one who points at our sin before a holy God and says, look at them, they deserve judgment. Now, Romans chapter 6, 23, talks about the fact that the wages of sin is death. What our sin earns us is death. Physical death, which entered into our world in the garden, but eternal death. In judgment. That's the wages of our sin. And so we see that Satan is the one who holds the power of death because he's the one who entices us to sin and accuses it by our, in front of our Father. He's aligned himself with our great enemy, sin and death itself. And so verse 15, outside of Christ, the world is those who are in slavery to the fear of death. Friends, death isn't natural, <laughs> Death isn't actually normal, it's 100% experienced by everyone, but it's not natural and it's not normal. Death is a blight on our world, it's evil, and because of sin, it's all the more serious because we'll face an eternal death, an eternal judgment to come if we're outside of Christ. But here's the point in verse 14, Jesus is our hero, Jesus is our saviour, he brings the victory, he frees us from death and he frees us from the fear of death as well and he did it by dying for us, verse 14. He became a man to die a man's death. The incarnation is the path to our salvation. Now, how does the death of Jesus free us from not just the consequences of death, but the fear of death. Now, why do people fear death? 
I reckon there's probably a whole bunch of reasons. You might have some yourself. But I think one reason people fear death is finality. At death, everything comes to an end. It's, it's done. <laughs> it's finished. Whatever you'd hoped you do in this life, death comes and ends it. It stops it. Unless, unless you're in Christ. And if that's the case, then death isn't the end, it's actually the beginning. <laughs> it's, it's the gateway into the rest of eternity. That's what death is if you're in Christ. And so you no longer need to fear death. Why else might you be afraid of death? Separation. The loss of those that you love, that you would want to be with. Well, in Christ, you can see them again. And yes, it's sad and it's terrible and it's painful, but it is only for a moment if they're in Christ. The Apostle Paul talks about those who have died in Christ, Christians, as those who have fallen asleep. They're not lost, they've fallen asleep in Him. Now, finally, why else should you rightly fear death? Judgment. The biggest reason to fear death is that one day you will meet your Maker. You'll be told to answer before God, and it's actually right to fear that day. Unless you're one whose sin has been covered by Jesus, paid for by Him, unless His death is your death, and so you're forgiven. And so, friends, I do want to ask you, is that you? Are you forgiven in Jesus? Is your trust firmly in Him as your only plea before God? He's your only hope. And so grab hold of Him as your Saviour. And if you do, you don't need to fear death. Now, Christians, Christians, do you fear death? There's something natural about that. But are you living enslaved to the fear of death? It's terrible. It's a terrible separation. It's pain and grief, yes. But it isn't the end. And so, Christians, we should be different to this world. This life isn't all there is. And so don't carry on living enslaved to the fear of death. I've got a confession to make. At the start of this whole COVID thing last year, uh, I reckon I went kind of crazy. I went a little bit crazy. I don't know if you know me, but I'm a germaphobe at the best of times. Uh, and I hate getting sick. And I hate the idea of getting really sick. And I reckon if I'm honest with myself, I was really afraid. A few weeks into this whole COVID thing, legit, like very early days before everyone really knew what was up, I'd already taken my kids out of school and I was like, we're going to bunker down, family. Let's just ride this thing out. We'll see how it goes. Um, before, before everyone was working from home because it got cool eventually and everyone had to do it, I was already doing that. I was like, let's just stay inside. I, legitimately, I was going to the shops buying groceries and I was cleaning them and like quarantining them on my back deck before I'd bring them in my house. And I'd tell people that and they'd be like, yeah, that sounds crazy. I, I was doing that. Now, some of that now feels a little bit irrational. I can have a bit of a laugh at myself. But I was scared. I was just scared. Here's the bottom line, though. We can't run from death forever. I had to preach that to myself. I had to preach what this passage is saying to myself. I'm a Christian. I don't want to die in this pandemic. But if I do, it will be okay. I don't need to fear death like the rest of the world. That doesn't mean be reckless and chuck out your hand, Sandy, or whatever. But as Christians, we shouldn't live in the fear of death, enslaved to it. And so right now, if you're someone who's feeling paralyzed by fear, well, preach Christ to yourself. 
Remind yourselves of the truths of the gospel. I'm safe in him. Death's power is defeated. Take comfort in this truth. Now, here's the second massive implication of the incarnation. As a man, Jesus can truly represent us and pay for our sin. Have a look there, verse 16. It says, For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. It's talking about the fact that Jesus is the one who helps Christians, Abraham's descendants, the ones who have their promises, their trust in the promises of God to Abraham, where he's true descendants. And so how does he help Christians? Verse 17, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. This is the second reason for the incarnation. Jesus became like us so that he could represent us to God. He became a human so that he could be our high priest. Now, if you're not particularly familiar with the Bible or particularly don't know the Old Testament, that might sound a little bit like gibberish to you. What's a high priest? What does that mean? You could head back into the Old Testament and see what a high priest does there. But actually, if you flick over just into Hebrews chapter 5, one page over, you can see a description of what the high priest did in the Old Testament. Look at verse 1, chapter 5. It says, Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to their weakness. He's one of them. He represents them as one of them. This is why he he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people and so the high priest must be one of the people to represent them to God and he has to actually offer sacrifices for his own sins so that he can then represent them to God and offer sacrifices for the people as well he's one of them he represents them picture the ambassador to China from Australia the ambassador of Australia to China turns out this guy's name is Graham Fletcher, or Gaza, as I like to call him now, since I've Googled him this week. Uh, but Gaza is an Australian. To represent Australia, to be an ambassador to another country, you need to be one of us. He can't be a citizen of some other country. He needs to be an Aussie to represent us to the rest of the world. It would be a bad thing if he wasn't one of us. To represent the people, you must be one of them. Jesus is one of us, and he represents us before God. He comes on our behalf to God. And his job, particularly, verse 17, it says, is to atone for our sins. Now, atone means to make up for our sins, to restore the broken relationship that's, that's busted. If you've got an ESV translation there, you'll see that it uses the word propitiation. Jesus makes a propitiation for our sins, which means the key thing to catch about that is it means that Jesus' death is the thing that deals with God's anger at our sin. He's a propitiation. Now, it's not popular to say that, is it? That God is a God who is angry at sin. But that's what the Bible teaches. And so the necessary way for us to be saved was that Jesus must become a man and die. Take God's anger at our sin on himself. He was a propitiation. 
And so incredibly, you'll actually see as you read on that Jesus is both our priest, the one making the sacrifice before God representing us, and he's also the sacrifice, the lamb itself. He makes up for our sin by dying in our place. And he needed to be one of us to do that, like us in every way. And so Christians, here's the point. Without Christmas, there's no Easter. Without the incarnation, there's no atonement for sins. Verse 17 says, he had to become like us in every way. Verse 14, he shared in their humanity so that he could die. Jesus' incarnation is entirely necessary for your salvation. He needed to do that. And so catch this, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is not some kind of cool, quirky piece of theology that you can sound real smart about and argue with people about. It's actually at the heart of God's plan to save you. It was the necessary way in which Jesus worked for your salvation. And so to be a person who denies the incarnation of Jesus, that he's fully man and fully God, is actually to deny something fundamental to your salvation. It's a staggering, world-altering fact of history that the God of this universe stepped into our world and became one of us to die. So praise God for the incarnation, for the man, Jesus Christ. Now, here's the final huge implication of the incarnation. As a man, Jesus can really help us in our trials and temptations. Have a look at that last verse, verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus suffered. Jesus was tempted, and so he can help. Sweet. Glad that's not my car. Now, here's the question. In what sense was Jesus tempted? In what sense was he tempted? Like, <laughs> um, we've just talked about, been talking about the fact that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man but in what sense can god be tempted in what sense can god sin like, what does that even mean that jesus was tempted well let's start with some clear ground first of all verse 18 clearly says that jesus really was tempted so let's lock that in he really was tempted in a true sense um, but there's some other clear ground we want to find have a look at chapter 4 verse 15 and see this as well Jesus never sinned. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, uh, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So yes, Jesus really was tempted, that's clear, but what else is clear is he really did not sin as he did that. He was perfect. And so Jesus really was tempted in the, in the desert by Satan, actually tempted. He was hungry and Satan offered him bread. He, he was tempted. Uh, when he was offered the cheap path to glory from Satan, Jesus could see that the way of the cross was harder and more grueling. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, he was afraid and he prayed. He prayed that there would be another way. He really was scared. He felt the adrenaline of fear course through his human veins his temptation was real he was a real man but notice as well this isn't this isn't teflon jesus jesus where nothing really sticks to him and he kind of just 
he's, he's really God and just pretending to be a human a little bit, kind of waltzing through life, untouched and unbothered by the world because he's God. It's not hard for him, right? No, no, he really was tempted. But still, as one who was tempted, praise God, he never sinned. He always honoured his father. And so here's, here's what I think is going on with this verse. I think here temptation has to mean exposure to seduction and testing not the inward evil desire to do so jesus was exposed to genuine seduction and testing but never did he respond with the evil inward desire to do so jesus didn't have evil desires that were sinful but he really was tempted see i think for us when we're tempted the two things can kind of get entwined for us so number one we're exposed to seduction and testing like jesus but unlike Jesus, additionally, we internally take on that temptation and it gives birth to evil desires and we act on our sin. Jesus never did the second, but he was really faced with the first. Real exposure to seduction and testing, but never did he follow that with evil desires. And so it's really helpful, you've got to catch this, temptation, exposure to seduction and trials it's not sinful it's not sinful to be one who was tempted and so brothers and sisters when you get to the point of temptation in your walk with the lord uh, don't despair don't go well here i am i'm tempted i've done it again stop <laughs> and fight and honor your god you're walking in the footsteps of your brother jesus temptation isn't sin and so notice that and stop when you notice temptation but here's the really good news when faced with suffering and temptation friends you're not alone you're not alone in that verse 18 jesus is with you he's your help now how how does he help i'll give you three things to finish up and they're wonderful things first of all you're facing trials and temptations jesus is our model that we can follow Jesus is the one who's gone before us and shows us how. See, how did Jesus face Satan's temptation in the desert? Well, it was with the Word of God. Notice, Satan came and, and he actually spoke the words of God. He twisted the words of God to Jesus, but he quoted Scripture at Jesus. And Jesus responds back with the words of God. He fights back with the promises of Scripture and he extinguishes the lies of Satan with the truth of God. And in the garden, when Jesus was faced with the dread of the cross before him, he was suffering even before he was arrested. The stress of it says that he, he sweat like drops of blood. He said of that moment, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The temptation to run and to ditch God's plan was real. And so he stopped and he prayed. He turned to the Father for help on his knees. And so, brothers and sisters, when you're tempted, when you spot that opportunity, when you see where it could be headed, you've not sinned yet. And so, stop there. Pay attention. Fight. Remind yourself of the promises of God's Word, His good promises. You can even quote them to yourself. You could quote them to the devil, if you like, and pray. Ask your Heavenly Father for help. He's faithful. 
The same mighty Father God who heard Jesus' prayers is the one who listens to your prayers. The same Spirit that filled Jesus is the, is the Spirit that fills you. So follow your brother. He's your model. He's gone before us. <coughs> all right. Jesus is our help because, first of all, he's our model. Second, Jesus is our help because he gets it. He empathizes with our weakness. We, we pick this up in chapter 4, verse 15. It says, We do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Jesus knows our weakness, he knows our sin, and he knows our temptation. He's experienced what it is to be a human. He knows what it's like to walk an earth that is marred by sin. He's experienced it all. In fact, I actually go further than that and say that uniquely, Jesus knows more of sorrow and grief and fear than anyone. Now, I don't doubt there's people here tonight who've been through some stuff, serious pain, stuff that I can't relate to because I've not gone through what you have. I don't know. I don't get it. But Jesus actually does. He gets it. He sees it. He knows it. So, are you one who's gripped by fear and anxiety, whether it's COVID or whatever else you've got going on, that, that anxiety in your brain you can't turn off? Well, Jesus knew fear and dread like no human ever has. He gets it. And he entered into that for you. He entered into your experience to rescue you. Are you facing pain, chronic pain, pain that's not going away physically? I don't know if you've ever seen someone going through chronic pain, but it's, it's terrible. It's one thing to break your toe, which seems like half of you did in COVID and broke your legs and everything else. It's one thing to break a bone or whatever, and it heals and it gets better. It's another thing to have pain come into your life that just doesn't go, and you just have to live with it. It just sucks the life out of a person. It can feel hopeless. You know, I've not walked that path. Some of you are, but Jesus gets it. He knows what it is to feel pain. Are you lonely? As we mentioned earlier, perhaps coming out of COVID, actually, you feel more lonely than ever. Even now, you've got people around you, more disconnected. Well, in Jesus' greatest hour of need at the cross, he was utterly alone. As he stared down the prospect of facing the cross, everyone deserted him. He was left as a wolf, as a sheep to wolves. Jesus knows what it is to be alone. There's a song, um, it's called A Prayer by King's Kaleidoscope. And I've got a weird, bittersweet relationship with this song. I love it because it captures what this passage is saying so wonderfully. Um, but it actually swears as well, which is a weird thing for a Christian song. And I reckon it's ultimately unhelpful. But this song that this guy's written, uh, it's ripped straight from the pages of his own journal. At the time that he wrote it, he was suffering from severe anxiety and, and really bad panic attacks. And this song kind of has two movements to it. And from this place of darkness, he writes these words and he says, Will I fall or will I misstep? Will you be there for me after? Will I waste inside this silence where the fear is so violent? Wicked sinners thrown to lines with no hope on the horizon. Will I fall or will I misstep? And the music drops away 
and the, the silence kind of hangs. And he's, he says, Jesus, where are you? Am I still beside you? Jesus, where are you? Am I still beside you? Jesus, where are you? The music goes completely silent. It just hangs in silence for a second. And then the music bursts to life and the words of Jesus in this song speak out of it. And he says, I'm right here beside you. I feel what you feel and I'm here to hold you when death is too real. You know I died too. I was terrified. I gave myself for you. I was crucified because I love you. I love you, child. I love you. The last three lines of the song go, I know, I know. I know. Jesus knows your pain because he's entered into it. He stepped down from his throne and entered into our mess and he's with you in it now. He loves you and he knows. And so take comfort here. Jesus is able to help because he suffered and was tempted as one of us. He's our model he gets it. And finally, he's the, thirst, the third wonderful piece of help. Jesus helps by paying for our sin when we fail. See, Jesus isn't just our model. He doesn't just turn up and say, hey, live like me and you'll be okay and it'll be all good. And he doesn't just turn up and say, hey, I get it. I was one of you. I know what it is to be weak. He covers our weakness by his strength. He paid for our sin and our failure on the cross. And that is our biggest help, our most important need. I don't know if you saw this, but actually verse 17 is really closely connected to verse 18 there. Verse 18 starts with the word because or for. And what that's doing is it's connecting it to the reason in verse 17. Jesus atones for our sin, verse 17. Therefore, by suffering for us, he is our help. His suffering, particularly at the cross, is the thing that helps us. And so Jesus' biggest help is that he defeats sin and Satan and death by paying for our sin. And so he's victorious. He wins when we haven't, when we failed. He's faithful when we've been faithless. He's victorious and his victory is ours. He deals with our sin. And so brothers and sisters, cling to the one who can really help. Our only hope, our only comfort, Jesus. He knows what it is to walk in your shoes. He gets it. He's the perfect model, so follow him, but cling to him when you fail. Trust in his forgiveness. Let's pray to the one who can really help us. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the miracle of the incarnation that God would step into our world, be one of us and experience what we experience. And Father, thank you that Jesus has dealt with our great enemy, sin, Satan and death. Thank you that it's all paid for in him. We pray that we'd cling to him, know him better and love him more. Amen.